Thank you, Ms. McNair, and greetings to all our brethren around the world on this Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. We're missing the tea here that uh, Dr. Meredith normally has. It reminds me that um, years ago when I was speaking at the Auditorium PM in Pasadena, I received a memo from Mr. John Kennedy, who helped the guest speakers, and uh, this was for the Day of Atonement. He said, we're looking forward to hearing you from the Sabbath and want to again welcome you to the Pasadena West PM. For your convenience, there will be a reserved parking place behind the auditorium for you. Please feel free to use it. There is reserved seating for you and your family near the front of the auditorium. If you desire to sit elsewhere, please contact me, and we'll be happy to make the necessary arrangements. If you need to review your notes, the Star Dressing Room is available. Coffee, tea, soft drinks, and refreshments are provided. I think Mr. Kennedy forgot it was the Day of Atonement, but uh, I did not find coffee, tea, soft drinks provided. But this is a wonderful day. It's an awesome day of atonement. We thank God that he's blessed his people with the understanding of his plan of salvation, which so few people on the face of the earth know. The plan is revealed, of course, through the annual holy days and the festivals. And for our new attendees, I would recommend you read the booklet on Holy Days, God's Master Plan, if you haven't read that booklet. And I think it would be a good idea for all of us to review it as we head for the feast. The Feast of Tabernacles begins just four nights or four days from tonight. And some of our brethren have already traveled internationally to attend the feast and are observing the Day of Atonement in a country perhaps that is new to them. Do you remember observing the Day of Atonement last year or where you were? Do you have special memories of the Day of Atonement years ago? Now, for those who are old enough, do you remember the Day of Atonement 1973? I was talking with someone earlier, and he had remembered what happened on the Day of Atonement in 1973. In 1973, uh, Dr. Meredith was Deputy Chancellor of the Ambassador College in Brickettwood, England. And my wife, my mother-in-law, and I were privileged to visit the campus then. And in those days, we held two services on the Day of Atonement. I'm sorry you missed this morning's services. Uh, but uh, for the morning service, I was assigned to speak in London, which was, uh, I guess, an hour and a half or so away from the Brickettwood Ambassador campus. Then on the way back to the campus in the car, we heard on the radio that Arab armies had attacked Israel on two fronts. Then that was called the Yom Kippur War, 1973. Some of you are not old enough to remember that. But it was rather an amazing event that took place starting on the Day of Atonement. Israel counterattacked by sending armies to Damascus, Syria, and also to Cairo, Egypt. The war lasted only 18 days, and Israel captured enemy territory. Another Day of Atonement was memorable. Four years after the Yom Kippur War in 1977, President Anwar Sadat of Egypt, instead of declaring war, declared peace on Israel. And a peace treaty was signed in March 1979. Eighteen Arab League nations denounced that peace treaty between Egypt and Israel. And just a couple years later, on October 6, 1981, the day before atonement, President Sadat was assassinated while reviewing a military parade. 
Today, there are still many conflicts in the Middle East, in Iraq, Afghanistan, and there are threats of future nuclear weapons from Iran. But on this day, not too many years from now, instead of a Yom Kippur war, instead of an assassination, an announcement is going to be made which says liberty and peace are proclaimed by the new world king, Jesus Christ. And also we know the meaning of this day that that great enemy, the adversary, Satan and his demons, will be locked up and put away for a thousand years. Satan will be dethroned from his position as a god of this world. Today will mark the beginning of the world becoming at one with God because Satan and his demons will be locked up and put away because the sacrifice of Christ will be made available for the world's sins and because liberty will be proclaimed throughout the world. And God's royal family, the first fruits, born into his kingdom at the last trumpet, will re-educate the world to the way of peace. So on this Day of Atonement, we humble ourselves in preparation for the world to come and in preparation for the kingdom of God to rule on earth. So let's consider the meaning of this day and the lessons it teaches us. Today I'm going to share with you seven atonement lessons, and that's the title of the sermon, Seven Atonement Lessons. You'll turn to the Day of Atonement chapter, You all know where the Day of Atonement chapter is? Are you all there yet? Leviticus the 16th, for those of you who don't know, Leviticus 16, starting with verse 5. Lesson number one is Satan will be put away for a thousand years. The Day of Atonement ceremony was one in which two goats were chosen. Let's read that in verse 5 of Leviticus 16. And he shall take from the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats as a sin offering and the one ram as a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself in his house. He shall take the two goats and present them before the Eternal at the door of the tabernacle meeting. Then Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Eternal and the other lot for the scapegoat. Now, I think those of us who've been around for a long time know that scapegoat is a mistranslation. It's not correct. Uh, It came from the idea of an escape goat because the one goat escaped into the wilderness, and that was contracted to the word scapegoat. But that word came to have a meaning of blame undeserved. So we say, well, all right, this is blame undeserved for this goat? Of course not. The Hebrew word is azazel. And even in the Moffat translation, for example, where we read here the other lot for the Azazel, the, the demon. So Moffat translates it, the other lot was for Azazel, the demon. So Azazel is the Hebrew word, and it does refer to or has the meaning of a, a negative spirit. But let's continue here. And Aaron shall bring the goat on which the Lord's lot fell and offer it as a sin offering. And we read through, of course, the book of Romans. We know that Christ became a sin offering for us. But the goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat, the escape goat, or the Azazel, 
shall be presented alive before the Eternal to make atonement upon it and to let it go as the Azazel, the escape goat, into the wilderness. So there were these two goats. One was sacrificed. One was let go. One, obviously, and we'll turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter here in a moment. One, of course, was symbolic of Satan the devil that was going to go into the wilderness, going to be put away for a thousand years, as we'll see in Revelation, the 20th chapter. But notice verse 15. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Verse 16. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. So he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. Notice also here at uh, verse 20. Of course, the high priest was only able to go into the holy place just once a year. And it was on the tenth day of the seventh month, today, the Day of Atonement. And actually, if you read Josephus and other accounts, they were always frightened because um, Aaron's sons uh, had uh, been killed. And uh, so now they were frightened. Is, the, is he going to come out alive? And there was always this gasp when uh, waiting for the high priest. Is he going to remain alive? And he would come out and there would be a, a great relief and sigh of relief that he was alive after having going into the Holy of Holies which is only allowed once a year. Verse 20, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place, the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, he shall bring the live goat. Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and shall send it away into the wilderness by hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities, to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Satan deserves the sins, the responsibility for all the sins that he's had part in, in human beings. We are responsible for our sins. But Satan has the one who has prompted people to sin and, of course, uses his devices, which we'll talk about a little later, to entice people to sin. Let's turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter. The 20th chapter. So you have the one goat that represented the sacrifice of Christ to pay for the sins of the world, and the other goat, the Azazel, which was sent into the wilderness with its sins being put upon its head. Revelation, the 20th chapter, and we'll start in verse 1. Revelation 20 and verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He lay hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil. Now, of course, in Leviticus we read how it was a fit man, symbolic of this angel. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. 
So thankfully, this day pictures that Satan will be put away for a thousand years. And apparently that will happen on the Day of Atonement. We also notice, of course, that he deceived the nations, and he won't be able to do that for that period of thousand years. Now, some have wondered, well, isn't it prophecy a day for a year? So if we have Feast of Trumpets on the first day of the seventh month and the Day of Atonement is ten days later, then does that mean ten years that Satan would roam around for ten years? Some have suggested that. The answer is no. (laughs) It will not be roaming around for ten years if we follow the principle of the 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, a day for a year. It was not 50 years. It was literally 50 days. And so we can look forward to uh, Satan being put away after the announcement is made, the seventh trumpet. Uh, Then he will have nine days later, and then he's going to be put away. Now, uh, what else will take place, of course, during those ten days? Well, we know, just as we observe the Feast of Trumpets, Revelation 11, verse 15, that wonderful announcement that we read on the Feast of Trumpets, the first day of the seventh month. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Now, at the moment of that announcement, world peace does not break out. He must still put his enemies under his feet. There's still the battle of the great day of God that is yet to come right after, well, after that announcement is made. Let's turn to Revelation 15, verses 1 through 3. So, after the Feast of Trumpets, then we read that there is another sign here. There are the last plagues, the seven last plagues, Revelation 15 and verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. Remember, the day of the Lord, the one year preceding Christ's return, is called the day of the Lamb's wrath at the end of Revelation 6. But then there is this intense fulfillment of God's wrath, Knows these last ten days before Satan uh, is put away. And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of the name standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. These are the saints that are in the first resurrection. They are going to be with Christ. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And here's the words of that special uh, song that follow. Verse 5 of Revelation 15. After these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels, having the seven plagues clothed in bright linen, having on their chests girded with golden bands. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Is it all right to be wrathful? Is it all right to be angry? Oh, Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the eternal is to hate evil, pride and arrogancy, and the froward mouth or perverse mouth in the New King James. Do I hate? Christ is going to be wrathful. Vengeance is mine. 
I will repay, says the Lord. That's in uh, Hebrews. The temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. So now what happens? This is the announcement right after the seventh trumpet announcement in Revelation 11:15. Now you have these seven last plagues. What are they? You read those through chapter 16. The loathsome sores, loathsome sores. The sea turns to blood. The waters turn to blood. Uh, men are scorched. Uh, darkness and pain. The sixth bowl. Uh, let's read that. Verse 12, Revelation 16. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. And its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. You've probably seen the telecast several times. We've had a map showing the Euphrates River going through Iraq and on down to the Persian Gulf. And you see what is east of the Euphrates River. You have those nations from the east, China, Russia, India, and other nations. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons, performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth. This is the whole world, all of the nations and armies of planet earth, and of the whole world. So even after the announcement is made of Christ becoming ruler of planet earth, there still is war ahead. There's still enemies that Christ must conquer. And these demons then go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And again, this is commonly referred to as the Battle of Armageddon. And if you have not read the booklet on Armageddon Beyond, I certainly recommend that you do that. And then Jesus gives us a warning and an exhortation in verse 15. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame, spiritually speaking, of course. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon, or Har-Megiddo, meaning the Mount of Megiddo or the Hill of Megiddo. So it's amazing to see, and we don't often emphasize that, but these are demons that go out and gather the kings of the earth for that great battle against God. Now what happens? Well, you have the seventh bowl, the earth is utterly shaken, where hailstones about the weight of a talent, verse 21, uh, come pouring down, and yet people still will not repent. They blaspheme God. So you have this period of time when the battle of Armageddon takes place, and all these armies come from the east of the Euphrates into the Middle East. And as we explained before, of course, they come down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which Joel, uh, is called, mean, Jehoshaphat means the Valley of Judgment, and that's where the great battle takes place. So these are the events that will take place. Now, Revelation 20 and verse 1 through 5, well, verse 1 through 4, we've already read, or verse 1 through 3. So we see then that Satan is put away on the Day of Atonement. And I saw, verse 4, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of them who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. 
So lesson number one is, Satan will be put away for a thousand years. Lesson number two is, the world will be set free. It will be set free from Satan. As you know, John 6.44, that God says, no one, Jesus said, no one can come unto me except the Father which sent me draw him. The world is basically blinded, and God has called only a relatively few to understand his plan of salvation. We'll see perhaps why that is so. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, the second chapter, 2 Timothy 2. Does Satan take people captive? 2 Timothy, the second chapter. Let's start in uh, verse 24. The Apostle Paul is giving instructions to the young evangelist Timothy on how to be an effective servant. In verse 24, 2 Timothy 2. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Verse 25, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his world will. The world has been held captive. In fact, uh, Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong wrote a booklet titled, A World Held Captive. He said at the beginning of that booklet, quote, You live in a world of awesome progress, but paradoxically of appalling evils. Why? It's a world held captive, deceived into loving its captivity, deliverance from kidnap and deception, human discontent, suffering and death hastens nearer. That is, deliverance hastens nearer. World peace, happiness, and joy are just around the corner. The world is held captive by the God of this world or the God of this age, as it has here in Second Corinthians 4.4, 4 whose minds the God of this age has blinded. And he's also called the prince of the power of the air. You should all know that, Ephesians 2.2. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience. So the world is held captive. The world is deceived. These demons go out and uh, incite all these armies to fight against Christ at his coming. And as we may have brought out in former... Feast of Trumpets, there are prophecies and uh, that are false prophecies saying that the Antichrist is coming, and when he comes, he's going to enforce the Jewish Sabbath. When the Antichrist comes, he's going to enforce the Ten Commandments. And so why will these some of these people, religious people, fight against Christ? Because they have been deceived into thinking that Christ is the Antichrist when he comes back. And they will fight against him then. But the world is being held captive. But on this day of atonement, the sacrifice of Christ, which is not available to the whole world because the whole world won't accept it. And the whole world is blinded. Now, for those whom God calls and they accept Christ's sacrifice, yes, it's available. But how many billions of people on the face of the earth are not accepting the sacrifice of Christ? Billions of people. And even professing Christianity only takes up one-third of the world's population of our 6.5 billion people. Let's turn to uh, Leviticus, the 25th chapter, Leviticus 25. 
which gives us hope for the future and the wonderful pronouncement of liberty for the nations. Because the nations then are going to have the opportunity to accept the very sacrifice of Christ. And on a day of atonement, the special announcement is made. It's made in the Jubilee year. But notice Leviticus 25 and verse 8. Leviticus 25, starting with verse 8. And you shall count seven Sabbaths of years for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years shall be to you forty-nine years. Very plain and clear. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound. Now notice there is a trumpet blast. It's not just on the Day of Trumpets, but this is on the Day of Atonement. There is also a trumpet blast. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month, the day that we're observing today. On the Day of Atonement, you shall make the trumpet to sound throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. And, if you haven't underlined this in your Bible, you certainly should, and proclaim liberty throughout all the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. How many of you have seen the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia? I'll see your hands. So, okay, we have uh, 24.5% have seen the Liberty Bell. You know it's cracked, but do you know what is stated on the Liberty Bell? This very verse... Leviticus 25.10 in little Roman numerals, proclaim liberty throughout all the land and to the inhabitants thereof, the King James Version of it. That's on the Liberty Bell. Our patriarchs and founders of this country realized that liberty was important. Well, that will be proclaimed on the Day of Atonement in the future. And I would say that it's going to be proclaimed on that Day of Atonement, right after Christ returns. It's going to be very exciting. In summary, then, for Lesson 2, the world will have the opportunity to be converted, saved, and reconciled to God. The nations will no longer remain as a world held captive to Satan, the God of this world. The world will come to know the King of Kings. And all nations will go up to Jerusalem to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, you know that, Zechariah 14:16, And the blood of Christ will be available as an atoning sacrifice for the world. So lesson number two is liberty will be proclaimed to the world. The world will be set free. Lesson number three is that nations will be reconciled to one another. Today we have conflicts all over the world. Man's inhumanity to man bloodies our history with genocide. We think of the Holocaust of World War II. And then there are the atrocities of Cambodia and Rwanda and Bosnia and Kosovo, just to name a few. How can these countries ever be reconciled when they've been such enemies? Well, first of all, they have to be reconciled to God. Let's turn to Romans, the fifth chapter, Romans 5. You see, everyone has sinned in the world. That's Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. You know that, Romans 6.23. 
But here in Romans 5, verse 10, we find the principle of reconciliation. We've been justified by his blood, verse 9 of Romans 5, verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Some of us don't ever consider that we were enemies. But this is the contrast of God's love towards his enemies, that even when we were enemies, he goes on to say, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Verse 11, And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And that's through an atoning sacrifice that we have that reconciliation. Turn to Isaiah, the 19th chapter. See, every human being, will be under the same judgment. Every nation will be under the same judgment. Isaiah, the 19th chapter. But will they ever be reconciled? Isaiah, the 19th chapter. You know, these conflicts go on. The, the Hutus against the Tutsis, the Palestinians against the Israelis, and on and on and on. Centuries and centuries of conflict that seeming, seemingly give no reconciliation. Isaiah, the 19th chapter. There is coming a time when those who were enemies, in this case Assyria and Israel and Egypt, that they will be friendly, they will be reconciled. Notice this in verse 22, Isaiah 19. And the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the eternal and he will be entreated by them and heal them. Well, we read that uh, the last plagues, the seven last plagues, that people are not going to repent, but apparently Egypt will respond to correction and punishment. Verse 23, In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. Verse 24, In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria. They're not that way now. They've been in conflict, although there was that temporary peace between Egypt and and Israel. And Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Eternal of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria the work of my hands, and Israel my inheritance." Just amazing. When uh, we were there with the World Tomorrow crew, I've told some of you this before, we were taping there below Mount Sinai, and we had an Egyptian guide for our television crew. And, of course, during the programming, we were bringing out the point about coming out of sin, that is, coming out of Egypt. And so here's this Egyptian guide, and we're talking about Egypt as being being a, a type of sin. But when I got to this verse, I read this verse just below Mount Sinai in that television program, Lessons of the Exodus. And I kept repeating it so our Egyptian guide would know that I did appreciate Egypt, and God will appreciate Egypt in the future. And by the way, you might not realize it, but if you ever travel to Egypt, you will find on the travel brochures the family, the holy family into Egypt. So they realize, look, Jesus... And his parents were in Egypt, so you better not condemn Egypt. 
though that is the way they uh, promote it in their travel brochures, the Holy Family to Egypt. But this is wonderful. Nations are going to be reconciled that right now are in great conflict that uh, may have lasted for decades or even centuries. So number three of the lessons we want to learn today, nations will be reconciled with one another. Well, let's turn back here to Isaiah 11. <clears throat> you know, still on that same lesson. Uh, one more scripture before we go on to lesson number four. Isaiah 11 and verse 12. Isaiah 11 verse 12. Talking about the millennium. And he will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. We'll see in the next lesson, the second exodus. But notice in terms of reconciling nations and peoples, verse 13 of Isaiah 11, And the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. For they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. And the Eternal shall utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in seven streams, and men shall cross over dry shod. It will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt. But I just wanted to emphasize the point here that Judah and Ephraim will be in harmony once again, even though there are continuing conflicts and envy. So, again, lesson number three is nations will be reconciled to one another. Lesson number four is just brought out here in this 11th chapter, and that is the second exodus begins. The Day of Atonement, people are going to again, once again, start back to the Holy Land to uh, find a new life, those who are the survivors of the Great Tribulation. The second exodus will gather captives from all over the world, and they'll travel to the Holy Land, just as we saw here they'll walk dry shod, as we saw in the last couple of verses of Isaiah 11. Let's take a look at Isaiah 11 and verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. Then you continue with what we just read. But this is the second great exodus that's going to take place just before or at the beginning of the millennium. Captive survivors from our western nations will begin a new life in a new land. That second exodus is also pointed out here in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 and uh, verse 7. Jeremiah 23 and verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Eternal, that they shall no longer say, as the Eternal lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt, Jeremiah 23, 8, but as the Eternal lives who brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country, 
from all the countries where I had driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So here's an exodus, not from Egypt, but from the north country, and from all the countries where God had driven them. And what will be their attitudes? Let's turn to Ezekiel, the 36th chapter. Those captives, those prisoners who are now free, those who have survived, they will have gone through great trial and tribulation and correction. They will be humbled. And it's be better for us to humble ourselves rather than to have to be humbled. Ezekiel, the 36th chapter, starting with verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. The heading here in top of verse 16 is the renewal of Israel. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Verse 26, Ezekiel 36, which again is a type of the new covenant in which we are engaging. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. No longer hard-headedness, stiff-necked, stone-heartedness, but a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. In the millennium will be, there be statutes and judgments, and will that be a part of a spiritual new covenant upon their hearts? Of course. We just read it. We just read that. Then verse 27. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. They will have a repentant attitude. It says here in verse 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Some of us in the past have committed abominations. We hide from that. And there are many billions of people who are committing abominations. And God will bring it to their attention. But thankfully, there will be a renewal. And he says they will dwell in cities, verse 33, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. So we're getting into the millennium at that point, but this leads up to the millennium. The second exodus begins. Now, Isaiah 27, verse 12. Isaiah 27, verse 12. Now, on the Feast of Trumpets, I was speaking in Los Angeles in the afternoon, and uh, it was very hot. It was about in the 90s there, and the air conditioning wasn't working very effectively, and and I noticed uh, that there were people sleeping as there are here now. And I, and I told them, I said, well, you know, I'll allow you a 90-second uh, siesta, uh, but after 90 seconds I may call your name. And uh, so they stayed awake pretty well that day, but I did cut the service early because it was just unbearably hot. Uh, but that's not the reason you're falling asleep here. You have other reasons. Isaiah 27 and verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Eternal will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will clumb who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, 
and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Eternal in the Holy Mount at Jerusalem. Well, this could be the Feast of Trumpets, but we generally historically in the church have felt this is the trumpet that I mentioned of the Day of Atonement. Remember, I emphasized that point, that there was a trumpet blast on the Day of Atonement. And this is the announcement of freedom. Those who are about to perish are going to be free. The lesson number four is the second exodus begins. Number five is to know Satan's deceptions. Second Corinthians, the second chapter. Know Satan's deceptions. You've heard sermons on this recently and throughout the past several years. But on this day, we need to review that principle. Second Corinthians, the second chapter. In Corinthians 2, and starting with the verse 10. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now what's he talking about here? Well, remember 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote this strongly corrective letter because they had this fornicator who had to be put out of the church. And apparently he repented so much that in the second letter, he's encouraging the church to let this fornicator come back into the church. And if you don't forgive him after he's repented, you are going to destroy him, is basically what, what the Apostle Paul is saying here. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest... Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, that's in the context of having forgiven this individual or to encouraging them to forgive after he had repented. But we also have the broader principle that Satan has various devices or strategies, and he's actively deceiving, and we have to be on guard. He's held the whole world captive by his deception. Verse 10 of Revelation 20 uh, was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet were cast. As it should read, the word R is in italics. It should not be there because the beast and the false prophet uh, at this point in time were cast there a thousand years earlier. This is in the context of the white throne judgment. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, meaning Satan and the demons will be tormented that night and day forever and ever. But Satan has his devices. He appears as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians 11:14, he is like a roaring lion. You know that first Peter 5:8, be sober, be vigilant because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And uh, Mr. Meredith knows the name of that movie, but it was about these tigers in uh, it Africa or India. And those tigers are now on display at the Field Museum in Chicago. But they, they harassed this uh, whole crew of people, and they kept uh, at night stalking uh, workers. They were building under the British Empire, uh, building a railroad uh, track, and uh, just uh, killed dozens and dozens. These lions would just stalk and sneak in and, and kill uh, without, uh, without mercy. There are these devices. You've seen the telecast on uh, Mr. Meredith's telecast recently, number 318, Overcoming Satan. 
and you've seen the telecast number 265, uh, Satanic Deceptions, seven Satanic Deceptions. I'll just list a couple of the devices of Satan that we are not ignorant, and we've listed these, so they're not new to you, but false doctrine, which Paul warned Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. And then there's lust, 1 Corinthians 7, 5. There's anger, where he says, Be angry and sin not, let the sun let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. That's Ephesians 4, verse 26. There's pride and vanity. There's lying. And, of course, Ananias and Sapphira learned what it was like to lie to the apostle Peter. But Peter said, you're not just lying to men, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. And they fell dead one by one, Ananias and Sapphira. So, Lying is one of Satan's devices. He's the father of lies. Then evil thoughts, which James, the third chapter, verse 10, comments on. And I've told you about my battle with evil thoughts as a young man coming into the church and how Satan would just pump evil, evil, rotten thoughts into my mind. I knew where they were coming from. Did Jesus ever have evil thoughts come into his mind? When Satan said, bow down and worship me, you talk about an evil thought, that is a horrible thought. It was processed in Jesus' mind, but he didn't, he immediately fought against that thought and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And that's how you battle wrong thoughts. You put right thoughts in there to replace the wrong thoughts. But Satan can project those. He's the Prince of the power of the air. Dreams and visions. Demonic movies. Uh, Satan uses those. And it's just amazing. You look on the movie page and hear all these uh, uh, violent and uh, satanic uh, type movies. Some of them are supposed to be um, entertaining. Uh, but they're not entertaining. They're deceptive. And Deuteronomy 13, of course, comments on uh, false prophets who may seem to even project or predict something that comes to pass. Can false prophets predict something that's going to come to pass? Yes, they can. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 13. But if they want you to go after other gods, they use that as a ploy to get you away from God's truth. You better be aware of that. Accusations. Revelation 12.10. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. Brethren, be very, very careful. Don't accuse anyone. You know, always, as we have in our Spokesman Ambassador Club speech manual, get the facts. You can state facts, but just don't accuse. Satan is after you, and anytime you slip up, anytime you do something wrong, you know, Satan is there at God's throne to say, did you know what Joe or... Sammy or Sally or Jane did? You know, did you see what they did? Did you see what they were thinking? And they bring that accusation before God's throne. But you have a defender, Jesus Christ the high priest, to intercede for you. He ever lives to make intercession for you. Hebrews 7.25 Be careful about accusations. Bitterness. Acts 8.23 When Peter warned Simon Magus about getting bitter. And I've seen people who are bitter. You don't want to get bitter. I've almost, I've caught myself getting towards that years ago. 
and learn because when you get hurt feelings, you know, you've received some pain or, or slander or false accusation, some injustice, and you begin to have hurt feelings. You begin to get bitter. You begin to, to want to get revenge or to get after that uh, person or get back at that person. And uh, if you don't counteract that feeling, then it leads to bitterness, and bitterness leads to the lake of fire because you can't repent. Bitterness to the extreme, and I think uh, Mr. Partian gave a sermon along that line, didn't he, or, here a few, weeks, a few months ago. But the, the whole point is is that you've got to counteract, recognize it immediately. If you feel bitterness towards someone, what should you do? Matthew 5, pray for your enemies. Do good to those that hurt you and despitefully use you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. If you don't do that, you're on a slippery slope into getting a a bitter attitude and uh, sealing yourself into the unpardonable sin, and you don't want to do that. That's one of Satan's uh, devices is bitterness and lack of trust where you don't trust God. We had a sermon recently a couple weeks ago on in God we trust. We don't trust God. You are an unbeliever, and the unbelieving, as you read in uh, Revelation 20, are going to end up in a lake of fire. So beware of Satan's deceptions. And that is lesson number, what lesson number are we on? Uh, Lesson number five, no Satan's deceptions. So brethren, Satan goes about as a roaring lion. We need to resist him, and he will flee from us, it tells us in James, the fourth chapter. Lesson number five is no Satan's deceptions, and pray that you will not be deceived by yourself or by Satan or by the world. Lesson number six is to walk humbly with God. Let's turn back to Leviticus 23. To walk humbly with God. Leviticus 23 is the feast chapters, and of course, <clears throat> to Protestants, Leviticus is, oh, well, Leviticus, that, that, that's a bad chapter. It's a bad name. That's Levites. We have nothing to do with Leviticus. Oh, what about the second great commandment? It's in Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here in Leviticus, the 23rd chapter and verse 26, And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of the seventh month shall be the day of atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Eternal. We're not under the Levitical priesthood, so we don't offer a fire uh, offering made by fire. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Eternal, your God. For any person who does not afflict it in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does not, does any work on that same day, that person will, I will destroy from among his people. You shall do no manner of work. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest. And you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. So here we have a, uh, just as a side point, a definition of what constitutes a day. If it's the Day of Atonement, the tenth day of the month, when does it begin? It makes very plain here 
on the ninth day of the month at evening from evening to evening. So you have a definition of how to keep a day. But here God says that we are to afflict our souls. Now, many of God's people have been afflicted with health problems or persecution or employment or school problems. Uh, but today is a day we draw closer to God. And while we examine ourselves for the Passover, we're humbling ourselves today, we should also examine ourselves today. And I've been asking myself recently, last couple days, what do I really need to change in my life? Back off a minute and see yourself and see is there something I need to change in my life? Now, we've asked that question. What characteristics and what attitudes, what approaches do I need to modify or completely change? And we all need to ask ourselves, am I growing spiritually as I should? Or am I still carnally minded? Or am I spiritually minded? It says there in Romans 8 and Romans 7. And are we reflecting the nature of Christ as we should? So as we afflict our souls, we should be answering those questions. And we can dedicate our lives to be more zealous toward God and towards Christ. We can commit our hearts to be more completely fulfilling God's will and his work. How do we afflict our souls? Turn back to Psalm 35 to see how David afflicted his soul. Psalm 35 and verse 13. Psalm 35 in verse 13. Well, we need to walk humbly with God on this Day of Atonement and throughout the year. Psalm 35, verse 13. But as for me, when they were sick, he's contrasting his attitude towards enemies and theirs towards his, my clothing was sackcloth. How did he humble himself? Verse 13. I humbled myself with fasting and my prayer would return to my own heart. The word humbled here in the Hebrew is anah, which means to afflict. It's the same Hebrew word anah in Leviticus 23, verse 32, that you shall afflict your soul. So David says, I'm afflicting myself through fasting. Well, this is a good time to ask those questions when we're afflicting ourselves. What changes must I make in my life? The Jewish community also asks similar questions through the Feast of Trumpets, through Yom Kippur. This is from a Jewish publication, uh, September 2001, typical of any number of Jewish publications that explain their observance of the Rosh Hashanah to Yom Kippur. Quote, The ten days of awe culminate with Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, from sunset, well, I won't give the date here, during this period, there are traditionally no weddings or other celebrations so that one can concentrate on reflection, repentance, and renewal. The pre-Yom Kippur meal is usually a light dairy one to keep from overburdening digestive systems about to undergo a strict fast. Community prayers throughout the evening and the next day are marked by general confession, personal petitions and resolutions, and repeated reminders of mortality. The observant do not wear leather. The very observant may wear the white robe-like garments they expect to be buried in. 
Now, that would be a reminder of one's mortality. Anyone wearing, I see a few white garments in here. The ideal is for nothing to pass the lips but prayer. No food, no drink, not even water, no gossip or light speech, end of quote. So that we don't necessarily agree with everything the Jewish community gives us, but it does give, give us a perspective on how that community observes the ten days of awe, as they call them. Of course, we spend more time in preparation of the Passover in examining ourselves than we normally do here. Dr. Meredith had a commentary that's on our website. I discovered it last evening. And it was a commentary in 1999 uh, entitled, Should Christians Observe the Day of Atonement? Uh, It's also in audio as well as in text. And this is what he states about the Day of Atonement. Quote, Everyone needs forgiveness because everyone has sinned. We urge you to deeply examine your life. Jesus and the apostles commanded everyone to repent and believe the gospel. One major emphasis of the true gospel is that our forgiveness is made possible through the the sacrifice of Christ and his shed blood. On the Day of Atonement, we deeply consider all that this day pictures in regard to our personal lives now as well as in tomorrow's world when peace will be established and humanity will be at one with God. In 1999, true Christians around the world observed that day. Isn't it time that you examine more closely the apostolic Christianity outlined in your Bible? End of quote. So appreciate those comments. But Dr. Meredith said we need to deeply examine our lives. So let's ask ourselves some basic questions. Are we seeking God's kingdom as much as we should above all else? Are we striving to overcome? Are we seeking to obey God totally? Are we asking God to write his laws on our hearts and on our minds as a part of the new covenant. Let's turn to Micah, the sixth chapter. Micah 6. And, of course, this is a memorization verse. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Hmm. My mouth is getting a little dry. Anyone? uh, Oh, I guess no one's offering. Micah 6. And uh, verse 8, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the eternal require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's what God requires of us. It's a part of my prayer. I hope it's a part of your prayer that you remember those three things. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So walking humbly with God is a way of life. It means fasting throughout the year from time to time, not just on the Day of Atonement. But we also apply the spiritual aspect of fasting, and that's Isaiah the 58th chapter. If you'll turn back there. Isaiah the 58th chapter. Starting with verse 6. You really should read the whole chapter if you are not totally exhausted and asleep before sunset uh, this evening, uh, I recommend that you read this whole chapter, Isaiah 58, and mark it up and think about it. We'll start with just verse 6, Isaiah 58. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Uh, 
Now, we do that, spiritually speaking, through tomorrow's world telecast, as you heard in the sermonette. The gospel is going out in greater power, and we need to support the gospel in that way. Dr. Pierre said, uh, you know, are you laying down your life for the work? We are feeding the hungry, that is, the spiritual, spiritual hungry, spiritually hungry, through the telecast and the Internet and the publications, the Bible study course. So we need to be alert also on a personal level and see, are we loosing the bands of wickedness on a personal level as well as through preaching the gospel as we're doing? So as we observe the Day of Atonement, we also recall the awesome sacrifice of Christ. This day remembers, this reminds us that he shed his blood for us and his blood covers our sins. Uh, Dr. Meredith wrote this in his internet uh, commentary, Should Christians Observe the Day of Atonement? It was posted, by the way, Tuesday, September, 20, September 21st, 1999. Dr. Meredith uh, states, quote, On the Day of Atonement, Christians humble themselves before God, remembering the awesome sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, whose blood atoned for our sins. The Hebrew word for atonement, kapar, K-A-P-A-R, literally means to cover over. Our death penalty has been paid for us, and our sins have been buried or covered over. So, brethren, let's appreciate Christ's sacrifice. The goat that was sacrificed for Israel on atonement was symbolic of the time the whole world will have the opportunity for redemption and forgiveness. Today, we remember Christ's sacrifice as well. Let's examine ourselves even today so we can continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Lesson number six was walk humbly with God. Lesson number seven is God's kingdom will reign. Let's turn to Revelation, the 20th chapter again. We've read this, but again, it's exciting when we realize that once the kingdom is announced on the seventh trumpet, that Christ is going to put all enemies under his feet, and then the kingdom of God will reign, that the king of kings, the saints, will become kings and priests, as he says in Revelation 1.6 and Revelation 5.10. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Verse 6, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So on this Day of Atonement, we remember, just as we did on the Feast of Trumpets, that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And now we will begin to reign actually over communities and states and provinces and, and nations and, and uh, cities. But... Uh, we need to pray even now for those who are leaders in our country as we are, of course, submitting to their government, which is God's government. They rule at God's pleasure. But we thank God for the liberties we enjoy in the Western world. And God will give under his kingdom the liberty to all nations, the liberty of truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free.
We have in the United States a pledge of allegiance. Here citizens and school children uh, recite that. I presume it's still done in some schools. And it states the following. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. So again, we thank God for the liberties we enjoy in the Western world. We have, at this time, uh, liberty and the freedom of religion to express and meet in peace. But we know that this world's evils are under the sway of Satan and oppression and injustice are rampant and rife all over the world. We look forward to that day when we will experience guaranteed religious, that is God's kind of religion, and genuine liberty and justice for all. Let's turn back to Amos, the fifth chapter. Amos 5. I remember it was, I believe it was right across from the United Nations. We were videotaping for the World Tomorrow telecast a uh, section with the uh, famous statue of the man beating the swords into plowshares. And right near it was a fountain. And the fountain had this saying here stated in Amos. Amos 5, Hosea Joel, Amos 5, and verse 24. But let justice run down like water, and righteousness like a mighty stream. We look forward to that time. And the Day of Atonement is just one more milestone on the way to world peace. Dr. Meredith wrote in his commentary, The Day of Atonement also looks forward to the time when the whole world will have the same opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation. Lesson number seven was, for the Day of Atonement, lesson number seven is, God's kingdom will reign. Satan and his demons are going to be locked up and put away. The sacrifice of Christ will be made available for the world's sins because all will be called. As it says in Romans 11th chapter, all Israel shall be saved. They're blinded now. They're not being saved now. Liberty is going to be proclaimed throughout the land, as it says in Leviticus 25 and verse 10. In God's royal family, the first fruits, born into his kingdom at the last trumpet, will re-educate the world to the way of peace. Today we've covered seven lessons for the Day of Atonement. Number one was Satan will be put away for a thousand years. Number two, the world will be set free. Number three, nations will be reconciled to one another. Number four, the second exodus begins. Number five, no Satan's deceptions. Number six, walk humbly with God. And number seven, God's kingdom will reign. Brethren, let's commit ourselves to overcoming and changing our lives. Let's grow spiritually. Let's do justly, love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And let's look forward to that future day of atonement when Christ the King will give that anticipated announcement to the whole world. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land until all the inhabitants thereof.